0: and welcome to Cast. I'm Claire. I'm Allie. And today we are continuing with our journey eastward. Uh, of course, we're going to talk about the ladies, as we like to do. <laughs> um, is that right, Allie? Yeah.
1: I just tried to come up with some, like, pithy thing. Like, I couldn't come
0: up with it. So. <laughs> <laughs> Who run was the world, I guess. Effort. Yeah. <laughs> I felt it. I felt it through I, the You airwaves. could tell I was
1: reaching for the Beyonce and I, yeah. I
0: came so close. <laughs> so before we get into that, though, um, I think I don't think we have any glaring royal oops from last time. Um, although admittedly, my knowledge of the Japanese monarchy is quite limited.
1: Yeah, I'm just going to hope that we said Akihito when we meant to say Akihito and other names when we meant to say
0: other names. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And if you're listening and you waited an extra week for this episode, thank you. We were Mm. traveling for once together over the um, Memorial Day weekend. We went to Iceland, which was really, really fun.
1: Yes. And we had planned Um, to have an episode up, but it just did not come together in time, so...
0: No, no. Um, and it was Memorial Day weekend. Well, which there was that, the States, so... Yes. <laughs> we you figured... know that's kind of intended to be a lazy long weekend, so... Yeah. Um, but tonight we're back, and so before we get into our episode, um, I think we have, like, a little gossip to cover. Nothing earth-shattering happened. Well, I don't know. The um, Duchess of Cambridge is having dinner with... Uh,
1: what's his face so that might be earth shattering for her
0: but oh well okay we can start there so if you uh follow us on instagram i did put a story up on this if you please do not ever let it be said that kate does not work because what she's doing tonight this is work okay (laughs) putting on a dress making conversation with american politicians the man she was tasked with walking into dinner is the united states treasury secretary i mean what the hell are they going to talk about um coupled with the fact that he's maybe not necessarily the most qualified treasury secretary in history and he's supporting a an administration that's not particularly popular the world over. So I'm sure there's a lot of small talk going on about the weather tonight is what I'm saying.
1: I'm sure she could hold her own talking about monetary policy, but she is having dinner with a cartoon villain. So it's fine.
0: <laughs> I just mean, you know, this is a man who was criticized for flying private. Yeah. And his, in response, his wife took to Instagram to chastise people for being poor so and sorry if we're getting a little political here but hey sometimes it bleeds in because it bleeds are in a little. talking it's... about people
1: who rub elbows with politicians and historically are politicians so it's bound to happen
0: yeah i just meant you know what this is the part of the job that can be a little tough because sometimes if i'm at a work dinner it's tough making conversation with the person next to me but when you add in all this added weight I'm yeah. sure it is not an easy job. So well, I
1: saw that Will was having, I guess, or at least walking in with Teresa May. So, you know, that's going to be a fun conversation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure she's like,
0: <laughs> she's like, I'm out of here in about a week. And you guys are stuck with all of this. Um, and then I, I did see Princess Anne walking in with Jared Kushner. And I can only oh. imagine what that conversation would <laughs> consist of. Oh, but yes, the president of the United States is visiting the Queen of England. It's the, I believe, the 12th president that Elizabeth has hosted in her tenure as Queen of England, which, if you think about it, is kind of insane. I mean... Yes, in the United States our presidential term is only four years and you can do two. So many of them perhaps have done eight in her term. So even if you account for that, that's still an incredibly long reign and she has seen it all.
1: And maybe we'll
0: just leave it there. Yeah. (laughs) Just hope everybody stays civil today. So, Um, well, I mean, that's the thing. I saw um, a video of Harry with donald trump and he was kind of like they made a point to say that he was staying keeping kind of a low profile because as we know over the weekend donald trump called megan markle a nasty woman as he is wont to do His i'm fame. sure i'm sure that made for a really welcome reception in harry's mind um his wife just gave birth and Megan was rightfully calling him out for his misogyny and bigotry and he called her nasty so and she
1: said that let's clarify in 2016 when she was only an American citizen not you know part of the monarchy and um also nothing she said wasn't was untrue so you know it's just
0: anyway and he said uh, it like three days ago Let's um, let's move. But on. speaking <laughs> of Harry and Meghan, so um, just a little update on the supposed rift, feud, split, what have you—the great Windsor, Wales split. Um, so there was a development in the past couple of weeks where um, you know you may know Harry and William had the Royal Foundation of Princes William and Harry, and then it became the Royal Foundation of Princes William. Uh, Catherine Duchess of Cambridge and Harry and then Meghan was added to that um, and so it was quite a mouthful of a title by that point so rumor has it that Harry and Meghan are splitting off their portion of the foundation and they're all going to go their separate ways to pursue their own charitable endeavors um, I think what we're seeing here is just this continuation of the trend and I have something that I want to say about this So it feels like a continuation of the trend where we're seeing a separation of households. Read into it, whatever you will. You and I have talked about the inevitability of this, but I've been thinking a little bit more about this in that, yes, I think it's inevitable, especially as we get into Elizabeth's mid-90s. Um, You know we're talked a lot about how this is part of this transition to Charles as king and therefore William as Prince of Wales and Harry will become um, the Andrew or Edward of the equation but what struck me when I thought about this again is. The inevitability of this was there all along. Everybody knew Elizabeth's age. Everybody knew that this was coming. So I wondered why they didn't do this when Harry got married. Why not just say, and upon his marriage, Harry and Meghan are going to start their own foundation. Harry is going to leave the foundation that he started with William and Catherine Um, you know, thanks for letting me tag along, guys, but now I've got my own household. I'm going to go out and do my own thing. It kind of struck me as a little odd that they didn't take the opportunity or the occasion of the wedding to sort of formalize some of this. It would have, I think, gone over a lot more smoothly. And then the other thing I was struck by was one of the things I read was that so that they could focus on more commercial endeavors. And I really was struck by that because... If we think about the constraints that are on the royal family one of the things is that they're not supposed to use their status for monetary gain and I don't think that that's what was being implied but I got the sense that it was maybe they can use their status and form relationships commercially for charity that William and Kate are never going to be able to do by virtue of their position you know, the bonds on Harry and Meghan are always going to be a little looser. So I thought all of that was kind of interesting, and I was just curious what you thought. I thought the same thing, because I thought splitting the households felt
1: perfectly natural, and I even that I understand waiting. You want to kind of see how everything runs for, say, like the first six months, and like let Meghan get her feet wet under this, Um, machine that is already well-oiled and running and like I think having to hit the ground running under a brand new household would probably create some um, complications and you know conflicts or like difficulties that you could otherwise avoid. What I also agree that I found really strange was the foundation seemed like the one area that they could retain ties together especially if you remember back to when they announced the engagement and one of the first things they did was this joint appearance where they all got on stage and they talked about the foundation and they talked about their plans and it was like this big you know welcome to the fold for megan um william and katherine said they were really excited and everybody got up on stage and gave this united front one big happy family But what I also remember from that was there was a slight suggestion at the time that maybe there was a little bit of internal conflict that maybe Megan and it wasn't clear who, like, didn't always see eye to eye or get along. And it was kind of this little nothing, like, I think they laughed it off, but now, in retrospect, I'm like, maybe they planned all along to work together, but they are different styles or approaches just aren't meshing. And maybe it is this commercial interest. Um, You know, I think nobody really knew to what extent Harry and Meghan were going to become public commodities in this way. I mean, the public interest in them is huge, and it only seems to be growing. And, you know, Meghan comes from Hollywood, her friends are Hollywood. And I think there might be temptations to take advantage of that as you said like maybe it's in the interest of charity but it might be that they've had to say no to a few things that they otherwise wouldn't so for example I think we've um, heard about I think two years in a row they wanted to invite them to the Oscars and they would never say no to that but I actually think that Harry and Meghan are sorry they would never say yes to that I think Harry and Meghan would say yes to that, and I think they wanted to, and I think if they fully isolate and separate themselves, they'll have more freedom to do that because, as you said, like Harry becomes the Edward or the Andrew and can get away with some of that stuff, and don't forget, I think it was Andrew who wanted, or Edward, um, I think it was Andrew, who wanted to do some sort of, like, TV thing oh that was Edward yeah Oh, that was Edward okay so he got the whole family like or some of the family members like on a game show or something you know and I I to me that's what
0: sounds like this might be happening well and I did wonder about that because I saw one reference about something about how there was like tension over money and I thought about it and you know the thing about it is that the reality is because we've talked about primogeniture and all of that but william is going to inherit the duchy of cornwall and that is a very lucrative position to be in and then one day he's going to inherit the duchy of lancaster which we talked about in our episode on titles and that is also a very lucrative land holding and it all feeds into their private wealth it's not a crown estate so William is set up to eventually be a very, very, very wealthy man. Harry inherited money from his mother. I did read that when the Queen Mother passed away, she left him more money than she left William, uh, recognizing that Harry would need it. Assuming it's been invested wisely, Harry is probably a moderately rich man. I don't think he's wildly rich Uh, by any means.
1: Yeah, yeah. They okay, he inherited a lot of money from his mother. Like, we're not talking a few hundred thousand. We're talking, he's no,
0: we're, got we're like talking a, hundred, a few
1: million. I don't think it's a few million.
0: No, it wasn't. Diana was not as wealthy as not hundreds of millions, but I mean, like, it's we're I think we're talking
1: double digits. Mm,
0: mm, I would say Diana's, and I don't know the exact figures, and we can look this up, but I from what I have read, Diana's personal wealth was perhaps in the double digit millions. And so let's say Harry inherited like five to eight million dollars, but I think it was actually less than that. She was not a very wealthy woman. And then he did inherit a lot from the Queen Mother. And look, these figures are shrouded in secrecy. Nobody knows for sure. But what I'm saying is compared to the social circle that they run in, Harry is probably considered moderately wealthy on his own. And compared to his father and what his brother will be. So So I think you're right. There's a temptation to monetize a bit in a tasteful way. I'm not saying they're going to go out and start posting ads on Instagram. I'm just saying, you know, partnerships might be made. So maybe, but like that's the thing that I like...
1: So every expense that is going to come up because of their jobs is going to be covered by whatever income goes towards, you know, the royal affairs. So if if they're having money issues, like, why are they? I don't understand how. The queen gave them a house, so they don't have to pay for anything. And, you know, all of this income question none of this should have been a surprise like what kind of lifestyle were they planning on because you know Megan made a few million like in her Hollywood days but I don't know what lifestyle they were planning to live if money should be an issue because their work expenses are covered their living expenses are mostly covered so if it's a question of money is it that they don't have enough money to like go on vacation
0: like what well no I'm just saying To you and me, to the average person, they're wealthy. They're very wealthy. But in the wealthy circles.
1: But there's no need for them. Like, I'm saying that whatever personal income they have should cover that because their lifestyle expenses are all, like, their living and work expenses are all
0: covered. Sure, sure. But there are expenses that you and I would never even think to be quote unquote necessary that in those circles are maybe more like if you fly somewhere you're going to fly private if you but they don't they fly commercial i'm just not on you don't know how they fly when they go on vacation is what i'm saying is what i am guess saying. i just like, have I, a hard time I, believing point, that they have money i'm not issues. saying <laughs> i'm not saying that they're gonna like monetize their position to get rich what i'm saying is that there are probably certain opportunities that could lead to some financial gain or perhaps you know might be seen as not so you know typically done as in the past that this split is going to enable them to do that's all I'm saying I'm not I'm not saying that they're greedy or that they're looking for you know merchandising on Instagram or anything like that I just mean I see it, I can see why they would do it, and I can see why they're doing it now. Because Maybe. you have to I, remember, the the dukedom that Harry has does not come with land. They just had a kid. I just, like, I just, like, don't believe any of that is a problem. Like, because they're not spending any of their
1: personal income on the things that you and I have to spend personal income on. Like... I, I don't know. I think it's more likely like I think to like. But
0: it's like to think of it as like you go to the store and you buy a watch. You might spend a hundred dollars. They go to the store and buy a watch. They might spend a hundred thousand dollars.
1: How often are you buying watches? It's like,
0: just a difference in lifestyle is all I'm saying. I'm really not trying to quibble about how much money they have. I'm just <laughs> saying that like to you and me it seems like a lot to the lifestyle well, that they live, likely, it doesn't go that far.
1: I think it's more likely, like, I think to the cookbook that Megan did, and, you know, that's a charitable endeavor, but it was also for sale, and I could see maybe there are some, like, questions around future projects like that. Like, if, if she's going to do something that is for for sale, like, setting it up so that the proceeds can come in and not – like. It, you know, I think they were pretty clear that, that all proceeds are going to charity, but, you know, doing future endeavors like that, maybe that's a line that the Cambridges didn't want to walk or something.
0: Maybe. Anyway. <laughs> that's all I have to say about that. Um, It's just kind of interesting. You know, we keep seeing this further division of the households and – I think you can look at it through one lens where it's completely natural and normal and this was always going to happen as we advance closer and closer to the ascension of Charles. Or you could look at the gossip side of it and say, wow, they must really hate each other. They can't even work together. And of course, you know, like anything, it's choose your choose your own adventure. Um, I think it's probably all a little bit of both. Um, you know, I think it's probably natural that if you've gone off on your own and gotten married and started a family maybe you don't just toe the party line anymore so um i don't think there's anything super scandalous in it i just think the rollout the handling of it all has left me a little bit surprised um i just think it could have been smoother if someone had thought 15 months ago this this is how this is probably going to go
1: Yeah, I think it also comes down to, like, nobody knew how this was going to go, so it could be the case that, again, like I said, nobody knew how big they were going to be, and maybe there's some bruised egos that now they can't, you know, it's easier to be respectful of the future king when you're not having to work together. Yeah, that's true um all right well let's talk let's go back to japan so we talked last time uh in our oops free episode about the abdication of emperor akihito in japan and why he's abdicating and what that means for his family and the succession and one thing we mentioned was this idea that females have been removed from the line of succession in japan and the imperial family is now facing a potential succession crisis. The only likely heir to the throne is a 12-year-old nephew of the current emperor, and the only other man would be his father because likely his uncle isn't going to be, you know, he's not going to succeed. So there's three eligible men in the line of succession for Japan. So how did that come to be? How did females come to be excluded from this succession? And I wanted to talk a bit about the history of female succession in Japan, because as I mentioned briefly last time, it wasn't always the case that women were excluded from the succession. They haven't been Like popularly elevated to emperor. I think there's only a handful of examples when we look at the entire 15 centuries of this line, but they haven't never ruled either. So how did Japan go from allowing females to rule on occasion when there's no available men to saying, oh, you know what? Actually, no women are ever going to be allowed to rule. And I talked a little bit about last time about the way that that came about, you know, after World War II, um, they changed the the rules of who could succeed, but there's this open question of the history, right? So Japan has clearly had female rulers. They've in fact had eight of them. So who were they, and how did they come to rule, and how did females get erased? Now, I want to qualify before I start that because I mentioned last time this is the oldest monarchy in the world, sources were a bit tough to come by when I'm talking about early female imperial rulers in Japan. And I didn't find anything that I trusted that wasn't offered only in Japanese. And I don't speak Japanese, so I didn't try to attempt that. So we are actually doing a bit of a wikipedia sourced episode this week and I apologize for that we don't usually like to do it that way but I really wanted to cover as much of this as I could and do like a quick overview and this was the best way that I thought I could do it where at least someone hopefully has looked at some of these articles okay
0: (laughs) No, I think it's good that you didn't try to translate Japanese for us.: No,
1: and, and the only reason I'm also okay with it, and you'll as we get into it, you'll see why, is that we're actually going to end up talking a bit about legendary figures, so um, the veracity of the sources might be under question anyway. <laughs> It'd be a little bit like um, reading or trying to find like first-hand accounts of like, you know, King Arthur, so. Not gonna go for that. Um, okay, so let's let's get into it now that I've given that asterisk to this entire episode. Um, like I said, Japan hasn't always barred females from the succession. Um, in fact, there have been eight female imperial reigns in Japanese history, but they all happened pretty early on in the in the monarchy. So between 593 A.D. and 770, um, that's when these eight women ruled Japan. Um, There were two more in the Edo, or early modern period, um, and you might see something where there's uh, 10 reigns, but two of these empresses actually ruled twice. Um, However, even though there were eight women who were elevated to maybe not the title of emperor, but the um, equivalent of emperor, um, only one of them was also succeeded by another woman. So all others were succeeded by males selected from the paternal imperial bloodline. So every single one of these women was basically put up there on the throne as a last resort. And as soon as there was a male born and old enough to rule, they then succeeded. So, okay, yeah. Although also I should point out that the historical rule um, in Japan, the historically the Im- imperial... Succession didn't necessarily pass from father to son um, because, again, we mentioned a little bit last time there's this idea of concubines, and so it might be the case that an emperor has multiple sons that he could potentially bestow the title of heir onto, and so usually um, by the time the emperor died, there's a pool of eligible men available to succeed him, and they would choose from among them who they wanted to be the ruler.
0: So it's not really a true primogeniture kind of situation, okay. yeah. Sort of like a choose-your-own-adventure.
1: Kind of, yeah. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about how that could go wrong, but yeah, basically factions and politicians and choose the one you want to rule. Um, okay, so who is the first woman who survived this whole process and you know came up above all the men to rule Japan? Well. That depends on how, quote, historical you actually want to get about this. Um, So I'm going to talk about two women who were the first to rule Japan because one is a legendary empress and one is a little bit more historically verified. So there are accounts of a female ruler of Japan whose reign began around the year 200. So that would make her if she did rule the 15th Japanese imperial ruler. So even going all the way back to the year 200, she'd be number 15 on the throne. So this is a pretty established dynasty by this point. Um, However, there isn't a ton of verified historical information about her to confirm her reign. Um, In fact, she was also said to be descended from Amaterasu Omikami, who is the sun goddess. So... Um, We might want to take it with a grain of salt. Um, And so she's often regarded as more of a legendary figure rather than a real person, kind of like England's King Arthur. So there are accounts of, you know, um, rulers who match parts of her history, but the entire bio isn't really verified. And I think that's pretty much the consensus on King Arthur as well.
0: It's kind of interesting that every monarchy culture seems to have a... An origin figure like that where it's sort of like, you know, one foot in history and one foot in legend.
1: Right, because there might have been this woman who ruled in Japan around this time, but because she's a woman, because historical records in the year 200 maybe aren't as great and also definitely not going to be as thorough when we're looking at a woman, it's going to be really hard to have historical Uh, Accounts of her, Um, and also you know, as you go the next, um, what is it, nineteen no, nineteen hundred years, no, eighteen hundred years. What year is it? (laughs) Seventeen hundred years. Whatever, however many years you want to go in the future, if if she does become a bit of a legendary figure, accounts get embellished and you know fleshed out, and so it's kind of really hard to go back to the source when there isn't 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 one. Because there are, like I said, there are accounts of her that could be potentially other women. Sometimes they're thought to refer to other imperial consorts from around the same time. So maybe this woman wasn't actually a ruler. Maybe she was the wife of a ruler who just had an abnormal amount of power. She's also sometimes thought to be the same woman as the shaman queen Himiko who dates to around the same period. I don't know if any of you saw the new Tomb Raider movie. She's the lady in the coffin who was going to raise a zombie army. Whether she actually was able to do that, I suppose that's lost to history. Um,
0: but I wanted to mention that because
1: <laughs> she does have a pop culture shout out. So I um, wanted to bring I that up.
0: She's also in the one of the new games, too. So they seem to like that story. The new games? One of the new Tomb Raider games.
1: Oh, okay. That's probably based on the movie.
0: Well, I think the movie was based on the game. Okay. But I'm saying they seem to like this legend. They've gone there twice. So kind of interesting. Yeah. It
1: is, yeah. So she probably really did live, or at least a, a woman who fits part of her bio description did live. Um, although her son is now considered to hold the title of 15th imperial ruler after there was a reevaluation of the historical records. So basically, there isn't enough evidence to prove if she actually ruled in her own right. But if she did, it would have been around this time, this early 200s. However, in 1881, she was given the honor of being the first woman depicted on a Japanese banknote, although it was an artistic rendering because there were no known images of her to exist. Um, And she was also the first woman on Japanese postage stamps in 1908. So uh, regardless of how much of her life actually happened, the Japanese people have looked to her as a bit of a legendary figure. They're putting her on the money and the postage stamps. I think, you know, that's more than we do for a, a lot of women. <laughs> so, yeah, and in 1908, that's pretty progressive. 1881, she was on the, on the money.
0: Oh, even better. Yeah,
1: but I think I think the timing of that is not accidental. I think you have that's around the time of the Meiji Restoration, and I think they're looking back to Japanese history and pulling up these figures to, you know, convey this proud history that they have um, as they modernize. A little bit ironic that they're using her for that given that the Meiji Restoration is when they decided women couldn't rule, but we will get to that. Mm. <laughs> so, All right, so that is all that I could really find on the legendary empress um, who potentially was the first to rule Japan, but we're going to talk now about the one who probably was the first to rule Japan. Okay. Yes, so uh, Empress Nukatabi, or actually, Nukatabi was her, I think, maybe born name, but she was known as Empress Suiko, I think is how you say that. Um, So she would have been the 33rd monarch of Japan, reigning from 593 to 628. Um, She had a royal bloodline, a pretty impressive one. She was the granddaughter of, now I'm going to name her... (laughs) family tree. We haven't talked about any of these people. I don't know if we will, so I don't know if it's the names are as important, but I want to just convey that she's got a long um, imperial bloodline. So she did not really ascend to the throne from out of nowhere. She was the granddaughter of Tashiraga of Yamato, which, like I said, not particularly relevant if you haven't studied Japanese imperial history, but I wanted to bring up the name Yamato, which I mentioned last time is the actual family name of the imperial dynasty of Japan. She's also descended, according to legend, from Empress Jingu, which is the legendary empress that I just talked about. Um, So that also means that she could claim a family line straight from a deity, if we're going to really go into that. I think this is a pretty popular notion in monarchies across the world, that your power comes from God, and so if you can, or a God, so if you can, you know, lay, lay claim of being descended from said God, all the better. Uh, she's descended from the sun God. So Suiko was born in 554, and she started her reign in 593. Now, she did rule until her death in 628, so her reign was actually pretty significant. Um, you know, it was a That's a pretty overs- long time
0: for that time period.
1: Yeah, actually. um, Not quite 38. No. Why do I keep trying to do math? This is going poorly. (laughs) But she did rule for a few decades. So um, also, I mean, given the time period, yes, a long time to rule, a long time to live. Her official role, though, however, was Empress Regnant. So she was not officially the emperor. And that would be because she's ruling as a regency in the place of the next available male heir. Um, before she ascended the throne, her personal name, or uh, I believe it's called Emina, was, I'm going to give this a go, uh, Mikakashiya Hime no Mikoto. Um, but another name she went by that was blessedly shorter was Princess Nukatabi. <laughs> so we'll go with, we'll go with that. Um, she was the third daughter of Emperor Kinmai and the younger sister of Emperor Yomei. So they had the same mother, Um, but not the same father. Um, But he was her path to the throne because she took a bit of a securitist route to get there. Um, And she is probably a pretty quintessential example of just let the woman rule when the men mess it up because she was a consort to her half-brother, Emperor Bidatsu, um, and she became Mm -hmm. his official consort after his first wife died. Um, like the
0: Egyptians, they did that. Yeah, too.
1: Yep. I actually thought about that. They were another dynasty that had no qualms about marrying siblings to each other. Now they were keep that bloodline pure.
0: Yes, descended and from that half- sun goddess. You can't <laughs> marry anybody.
1: Yeah, they were half-siblings, but... um, It's still gross.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, She was then given the title Okisaki, which means official consort of the emperor. So she
0: graduated to... I thought you were going to say it meant official consort of your (laughs) half-brother.
1: Well, maybe both. (laughs) Um, But she's now in the position of head wife. And they had seven children.
0: Um, Oh, God. Were they all normal? Well, we don't know. I
1: found nothing about their health status but I could imagine there might have been some issues <laughs>
0: so so just as a side note if we're talking about incest for a sec uh at the end of Game of Thrones and everybody was talking about like John and Danny and they were aunt and uncle and it was talking about like the risk of issues was not as high as I thought it would be even between like half siblings so it's probable maybe they were all fine I'm just saying I the risk of genetic anomalies was not as high as I thought it would be.
1: I think the risks become higher when you compound it. So, like, the Targaryens are an example because Danny's parents were siblings. So then if she were to have married her brother, and they had, like, you're kind of just concentrating the bloodline.
0: But then, I mean, they must just all come out looking exactly the same. Cause well,
1: I think <laughs> that's just... how you end up with purple eyes. I don't know. <laughs>
0: I was thinking about the Habsburg jaw. I was thinking about a real life No, that's how you
1: end up with that. That's how you end up with the Habsburg jaw. That's how you end up with hemophilia. That's how you end up with a lot of problems. That's how you end up with madness, um, the madness of King George.
0: I was going to say, those are the least of your problems.
1: Yeah. So it's true that this is a widely adopted practice across Eastern and Western um, cultures, but... Yeah, they just didn't have enough knowledge about genetics to know that maybe you shouldn't make this a common practice. But, you know, if you want to keep it in the family, what better way to do it? You marry your brother. So. Um, Ugh. <laughs> and I don't actually okay. know that any of their seven children succeeded either of them to the throne. So to what end, I don't know. <laughs> so, um after her husband Bidatsu died, um her her other brother who I mentioned before, Yomei ascended the throne. Um, but he died two years later. After that, and his death actually led to a power struggle. And he was eventually succeeded by Emperor Sushun in 587. But then five years later, Sushun was assassinated by his political rivals, leaving a power vacuum. So, in this power vacuum, Suiko was or Suiko was asked to ascend to the throne. Uh, perhaps. Pretty likely to head off another power struggle between the male contenders. So, like I said, an example of, well, the men can't figure it out, let's try a woman. We mentioned Theresa May at the top of this episode. That's pretty much how she wound up with her job as well. <laughs> <laughs> Not to bring politics back into this. (laughs) Um, This has been happening for centuries. So um, the following year, uh, after she's made empress, regnant, a regent um, actually is appointed um, by the name of Prince Shotoku. And he likely wielded most of the political power during her reign, although... Suiko was probably not powerless, um, surviving and reigning at all, and for as long as she did shows that she probably did have formidable political instincts. Um, And her reign was actually marked by a a lot of firsts for Japan. So whether she's instrumental to these changes or not, she is the one on the throne, so I'm going to give her credit. So just a few of those I'll run through real quick. So official recognition of Buddhism. Um, there was the issuance of the Flourishing Three Treasures Edict in 594, um, officially recognizing Buddhism as a religion of Japan. Um, and she actually was one of the first Buddhist monarchs of Japan and had taken the vows of a nun shortly before becoming empress. Mm. So, you know, I think she had a whole other career in mind. <laughs> Um, She also opened relations with the Sui Court in 600, which is a short-lived Chinese imperial dynasty, so uh, diplomatic ties with China, and also the adoption of the 12-level cap and rank system in 603, which was a hierarchy system of rank based on merit and individual achievement rather than heredity, so bringing more of a meritocracy to Japanese, uh, well, I'm sure still to the elite, but, you know, at least now it's not about who your father knows. It's a little bit more based on merit. Um, And also pretty important, the adoption of the 17-article constitution in 604, which was a highly Buddhist and Confucian document that focused on the morals and virtues expected of government officials and the emperor's subjects to ensure a smooth running of the state um, and the emperor is listed as the highest authority in this document. Um, it's not really what we would think of as a constitution today, but it is one of the earliest constitution-type documents in history. So Japan, trailblazers.
0: For the time being.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't think this is democracy the way we think of it now, and you can have a constitution without democracy, but they're they're at least codifying their laws in a in a more modern way. Um, Now this is the year 600, so not as modern as now. Um, And then also they're changing the calendar. So adopting the sexagenary cycle calendar in 604, where 60 years equals one cycle of this calendar. Um, I have a hard enough time with 12 months. I don't know about 60 years. Say that again. So instead of 12 months to a year, like. Maybe they're not thinking of it in years, but one cycle of this calendar is 60 years.
0: I thought you misspoke. I was like, what? I thought you meant like 60 months or something. I was like, okay, maybe I could see that. 60 years. Yeah. Okay.
1: (laughs) So it's not really about years, but however they're tracking time, they're on a 60-year cycle. Okay. It might be similar more to like a zodiac, you know, where like every year is the year of something different and it just repeats.
0: Like an age? Yeah. Okay. I didn't
1: look much into that. 60 years is a long that. time. I
0: mean, people would be dying.
1: Yeah. <laughs> one cycle, one life, basically. Okay. Um, yeah, I might look a little more into that for next time. That's really interesting. Um... So I mentioned this a little bit before. So at the time of her rule, succession was determined by clan leaders rather than the emperor. So she's not leaving the throne to her eldest child. Um, But her wishes would be taken under consideration. However, she only left vague indications on her deathbed of who should succeed her. And um, I do want to mention that both candidates were male. So like I said, she's not being succeeded by a woman. Um, she did rule for 35 years. Um, so, okay, this was the math I tried to do. It was already in here. (laughs) So (laughs) her reign was 35 years. So not actually a short amount of time considering the time period, right? I mean, 35 years was basically old age for a lot of women considering she also had seven children. So living long enough to rule. I know. That's why I think, you know, it's, pretty evident she probably had good political instincts to make it that long. Mm. Whether she was truly ruling on the throne, no one had any cause to remove her for that, that time period, for over three decades, so pretty impressive. But I mentioned this fact that she's followed by males because it's going to continue to be the case for the rest of Japanese history where women are ruling. She was followed throughout the centuries by seven other reigning empresses, but their successors were often chosen from the males of the imperial bloodline, which is the reasoning that now many conservative scholars use for male-only succession in the 21st century. So we're looking at the history, and I'm trying to make the claim (laughs) that Japan has a history of women on the throne, and conservative scholars are looking at this history and arguing that because these female reigns were only temporary and often followed by male reigns, that that's the reasoning for excluding women now. This sort of leaves out the crucial point that every reign is temporary just because people die. But who am I to argue, I suppose? Mm-hmm. <laughs> With the women, it's proof that it's temporary. With the men, it's proof of how it works. So. Exactly. Can right? you tell I'm bitter? <laughs> um, so how did we get to a place where women are officially excluded from the succession? I touched on this Briefly before. Um, So, female reigns came to be officially prohibited when the imperial household law was issued in 1889 with the Meiji Restoration. So, like I said, kind of ironic. In 1881, they're adding this legendary empress, Jingu, to the banknotes um, while at the same time saying that women can't rule. So, yeah,
0: that's a little jarring.
1: Right? Like, we're going to celebrate our history of female rule and our legendary history, but we're also going to proclaim that women are officially prohibited from ruling. Because if we get to the Meiji Restoration, we've jumped forward now about, from um, Empress Suiko, about 1,250 years. Um, And Japan is a very, very different place. So the emperor is still technically in power, but the intervening centuries have seen a lot of warfare. Um, between various political factions, between Japan and other countries, and Japan's evolution has pretty much been complete into a feudal society, um, led in name by the emperor, but in actuality led by the Tokugawa shogunate. So um, I don't want to get too much into this, but you have this idea of shoguns, which are essentially warlords who are ruling various regions of Japan and I think, ostensibly reporting up to the emperor, but his actual power is pretty limited. However, because of this state of things, Japan is something happens where they're pretty much, it's, it's pretty self-evident that Japan is behind the times. So um, Meiji means enlightened rule. Um, and the goal of the Meiji Restoration is to combine modern advances with traditional Eastern values, because in 1853, Japan is visited by an American Commodore named Matthew Perry, not to be confused with Chandler on Friends, And Japan became aware of just how behind technologically they were. And this was due entirely to the isolationist foreign policy of the shogunate, because any foreigners entering Japan or Japanese nationals leaving Japan had been threatened with death. And this policy lasted about 250 years. So for two centuries, no one's allowed to come in and no one's allowed to leave so the rest of the world outside is growing by leaps and bounds in technological advancement and japan has cut themselves off from all of this um, it's not kind everyone of wanted to
0: think about now
1: i know right well <laughs> So, they took this idea of modernization very seriously. Um, In 1866, a reformist wing of the country decided to challenge the shogunate and restore the emperor to true power. You know, these people are looking at what they've discovered about the outside world and they're thinking, we're doing something wrong. Um, So, the shogun resigned officially in 1867, and the official restoration of the emperor followed in 1869 after the Boshin War, um, the shogun's army didn't really go that willingly because I think understandably they had a lot of power. They didn't really want to just hand it over, um, but ultimately they were defeated. So this, this restoration, the Meiji Restoration, brought a lot of reforms to Japan, um, to the military, the government, and the social structure. So the ultimate goal and outcome was to lead to a more modern market economy and a strong centralized state, Um, including they uh, standardized the dialect. So um, all these regional dialects were um, standardized into one official uh, way of speaking. Um, Japan became the first Asian state to modernize based on the Western model. So they replaced the traditional Confucian hierarchy with a more um, Western system of government. Um, And the restoration also accelerated the industrialization in Japan. um, And it had done all of this and emerged as a military power by 1895. So after the shogun was overthrown, they hustled. And they took basically less than 30 years to get to worldwide dominance.
0: That's crazy.
1: I mean, I think it's, an, it's a matter of just learning the technology and implementing it, right? I mean, because I'd imagine a lot of the necessary structure and, government and resources are in place, you just have to decide how you're going to expend them. But for the purposes of our discussion today, and now we could do a whole series on the Meiji Restoration. So that was a very quick overview. Um, And the reason I'm bringing it up is because what it also introduced was the Imperial Household Law, which was a document that codified into law the idea of a male-only succession. And they did this again and again and again. This document is very repetitive with the idea that men are the only ones who can rule. So Article 1 states that the imperial throne of Japan shall be succeeded by male descendants in the male line of imperial ancestors. Article 2 doubles down on this. The imperial throne shall be succeeded to by the imperial eldest son. Article 3. So they're going through every contingency here. When no imperial eldest son exists, he's succeeded by the eldest grandson, and so on until you get to a male in the family. That's why right now you have a 50-year-old emperor whose most likely heir is a 12-year-old boy.
0: That'll Um, end well.
1: Yeah. Article 4, succession of full blood trumps half blood. So trying to keep this more to the emperor's uh, immediate family. And all the way down to Article 8, detailing how it would pass through the male line only. So there's various scenarios that they've accounted for. Um, Article 13 states that any female chosen to assume as regent should only be one with no consort. So in the unlikely event that you have decided a female can rule as regent, she must have no family of her own to potentially lay claim to the throne. And of course, as we mentioned last time in 1947, this law was updated by the occupying forces uh, after World War II to further limit the pool with the shrinking of the imperial family. So we've gone from legendary historical women ruling when there's no other option, but nevertheless allowed to rule in at least eight instances to now women are officially barred from ruling Um, So there is a history of female power, but it's always a means of last resort when power would most likely otherwise mean that it would leave the existing dynasty. So again, last resort, the option of a female is always better than, you know, handing power to another family, Um, but it's not unheard of. Um, But the tradition that this introduced of excluding women unless absolutely unavoidable um, kind of... If I look at the way this plays out because of the Meiji Restoration, this idea of trying to make Japan more like the western powers, like all of this together makes me feel like this tradition merged in a way seamlessly almost with these western ideas of female power. Like we think historically, you know, we've talked a lot about the British monarchy and women were often a last resort as well. I mean, look at what happened after um <laughs> Edward died and you've got three women who nobody thinks are great options, but what are you going to do? So they're kind of applying this idea. And then unluckily, this also gets swept up as a convenient way to limit the size of the imperial family after World War II. And that's how we end up where we are today with a 12 year old boy as the only option.
0: Yeah, it is kind of interesting. You wonder if left to their own devices, what would they have done?
1: Right. I mean, it's hard to say, because uh, you know, without the Meiji restoration, the emperor is more of a token figurehead for the next 200 years. Uh, I mean, that happened pretty much anyway after World War II. But um, the restoration codifies this idea of women can't rule. But up until then, left to their own devices, Japan seems perfectly happy that, when necessary, you can have a female regent, you can have a female rule until there's a male available. But now we've come to this modern system of even in that instance, you know, we've got um, an emperor right now with only a daughter and two nieces, and one, the youngest, you know, in this family is only 12 years old, and he's the only boy. And nothing is being done to make an exception for having him be followed by his daughter or one of his nieces. And it's kind of all tied up in this idea of tradition, but as we've just talked about, that hasn't always been the tradition. I mean, when you've got 15 centuries of history to draw upon, surely you can find tradition to suit the the means and the needs of the day, right?
0: Yeah, it's I'm going to say it again, choose your own adventure.
1: <laughs> yeah. So hopefully that made sense. I I was trying to chart this path of, you know, where they started with women How they officially excluded women and where we are now. So,
0: yeah, no, I think it's interesting. It's just interesting what you say. It's like you have this legendary figure, kind of like King Arthur, and I'm sure they have their male counterparts as well, but they have Mm -hmm. one who's a female.
1: No, there definitely are some legendary emperors from this same time period as well. So, she's not the only one. But She's the fact that a woman the one that got written about the least.
0: A woman makes it onto the stage, if you will, and then you've got all these instances where it's not unheard of, and like you said, they're usually a last resort, and I think that's just seems to be a common theme in human history. It's usually the women get pushed to the side, unless you're talking about a matriarchal society, and then and then you have an instance where the western world steps in and says well yeah actually the women can't rule and we're going to enforce that and and we're going to write it into the very fabric of your of your government um
1: don't you find that so fascinating that the modernizing and westernizing is when they officially excluded women
0: <laughs> not really fascinating because it's well it's not all I guess that surprising but yeah.
1: fascinating i guess in a way because um uh You know, if we look at the way history has been taught by uh, those in power for the last hundred, you know, few hundreds of years, the idea of modernizing and westernizing is supposed to mean better, right? Like, that's not always true. And, you know, again, history is written by the victors, but um, this idea that it's supposed to be better and they've excluded half their eligible population from, from ruling. I crazy. just take offense.
0: <laughs> well, like we said before, you know, there's only a 12-year-old boy in line. They might, have, they might be forced to make some changes. Yeah.
1: I mean, we'll definitely keep an eye on that situation. But um, that, for now, is the brief history of early female rule in Japan and the lack of it since the mid-1800s. So. Yeah. Um, so next time, I think we might be moving on from Japan.
0: Yes. Yes. I have an idea for next time. I don't. I don't want to say it out loud though. I have to do a little bit more research.
1: Okay. Well, we'll all be surprised.
0: Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time. <laughs> Until next time. All right. All right. Bye.
1: Monarchast is produced by me, Ali, and me, Claire. And our logo is by Ryan Cooney. If you like our episodes and want to give us a shout out, please rate or review us on iTunes or Google Play or whatever your preferred method of podcast listening is.
0: We really appreciate it.